Section 17 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 2, Part 2. Exile Frequent allusions above to exile as occurring in sentences indicate how customary a feature it was in the penal system of the Inquisition. By itself, or in combination with other penalties, it was an unfailing resort in offenses that did not incur the graver punishment of imprisonment. It could be varied indefinitely to suit the peculiarities of each case, and the tribunals exercised the wildest discretion in its employment. In its usual form it designated certain places and a fixed number of leagues around them which the penitent was forbidden to enter. A list of proscribed localities, as a rule, indicated Madrid, or rather the royal residences, the seat of the tribunal, the dwelling-place of the culprit, if this was not comprised in the others, and any other towns, sometimes amounting to four or five, where he had been known in his guilty career. Although this was a convenient resource to the tribunal, it was a somewhat irrational penalty, the severity of which could hardly be guessed at, for while it might be scarce more than an inconvenience to one offender, it might be the destruction of a career to a merchant established in business, or to a professional man with an assured clientele. Considerations of this kind, however, rarely influence the tribunals, and in the Toledan record of 1575 to 1610, we find exile included in a hundred and sixty-seven sentences. The length of exile was always specified, and varied from some months to a lifetime, but it usually was a term of a few years. Sometimes it was divided into two portions, the first preciso, or absolute, the second voluntario, or dependent upon the will of the tribunal, apparently as an incentive to amendment. A variant of this occurs in the case of Diego de Toro, sentenced for bigamy at Toledo in 1652, to four years of exile absolutely, and four years more, which he was to fulfill whenever the tribunal should see fit to order it, thus holding it over him indefinitely. It was not often that the Inquisition exercised the power of banishment from Spain, but it did not hesitate to assume such authority when it saw fit, and a converse to this was the occasional prohibition to leave Spain, of which an instance is cited above. Another form, in which the wide discretion of the tribunals was exhibited, was forbidding the penitent to approach within a specified distance of the sea-coast. This was not infrequent in sentences on Moriscos, whose relations with Barbary always excited apprehension, but it is not apparent why the Valladolid Tribunal, in 1659, when sentencing Diego de la Peña for Jewish tendencies, should have included an inhibition to approach within eight leagues of any seaport without a special license. Again, we sometimes find a penitent exile to some particular place for a term of years, and this is frequently combined with provisions for keeping him under surveillance. Thus, the Valladolid Tribunal in 1659 sentenced Isabel Rubia and Maria Martin for sorcery to reside for four years in a place to be designated, 
where there was an official to whom they must present themselves monthly, and who would report as to their amendment. This was sometimes a form of commutation for imprisonment, as in the case of Isabel Nunez, sentenced at Cuenca to prison and San Benito, which was modified to four years' exile at San Clemente. December 24, 1657, she presented a notarial certificate of her being there, and begged that, as she was seventy-four years old and very poor and miserable, she might be released, in honor of the birth of the prince, Felipe Prosper, or at least have the place changed to Alcala, Guadalajara, or Pastrana, where there were people who would help her. This pitiful petition was simply endorsed to be filed with the papers of the case, which indicates that it was refused. A more rigorous example of this, which shows that no limit was placed on the discretion of the Inquisition, was the banishment for life to the Philippines in 1802 of two frailes concerned in the imposture of Isabel Maria Herais, known as the Beata of Cuenca. Conversely, a penitent might be prohibited to leave a designated place, as when, in 1599, Rodrigo Ramirez, a morisco of Ipes, was forbidden for three years to leave Ipes without license. As the ordinary form of exile was easily violated, the sentence, as we have seen before, was frequently accompanied with a threat of increased penalties for non-fulfillment. In Toledo, this seems ordinarily to be a doubling of the original term, but frequently it was more severe, as in 1604, at Valencia, the sentence of Bartolome Posca added to this a hundred lashes, and in 1607, Francisco Giner, condemned to five years' exile, was threatened with three years of galleys. It was probably to check, in some degree, the facility for evasion that the Suprema, in 1665, required the tribunals to furnish it with a description of the culprit whenever they pronounced a sentence of exile. As this always comprised Madrid, and as the capital was likely to attract the homeless waifs, details which might assist in their identification were useful. Raising Houses in the imperial jurisprudence, houses in which heretics held their conventicles were forfeited to the church, and this provision was adopted in the legislation of Alfonso X. When prosecution was systematized in the 13th century, this was modified to tearing down all houses in which heretics were found, the site remaining forever accursed and unfit for human habitation. This was accepted by the church, and found its way into all the lands that admitted the Inquisition. Aragon adopted it, and when, about 1340, the spiritual Franciscan Fray Bonanato was burnt, and his disciples were scattered, the building which they had occupied at Via Franca del Pañades, near Barcelona, was leveled to the ground. In the early days of the Spanish Inquisition, the strict enforcement of the rule would have led to great destruction and serious impairment of the value of confiscations. It seems, therefore, to have been reserved for buildings in which the heretics or apostates had been accustomed to assemble, and then the king, as the recipient of confiscations, decided the matter. A letter of Ferdinand, May 23, 1501, to Aliaga, his receiver at Valencia, states that the inquisitors have asked him to decree the destruction of a house in which a synagogue had been found, 
to which he assents with a suggestive addition that the civic authorities must be ordered to offer no opposition. It turned out that Ferdinand had already given the house to Juan Perez, the scrivener of sequestrations, whereupon he ordered Aliaga to have it appraised and to pay the value to Perez. He seems to have offered no opposition to Lucero's operations in Cordova, where a number of houses were torn down as having served as synagogues, and he ordered them rebuilt when the Congregación Católica assembled at Valladolid in 1509 pronounced the prosecutions fictitious. When the confiscations passed to the Inquisition, financial considerations apparently got the better of zeal, for when, in 1539, at Valencia, trials of a number of Judaizers revealed that a crucifix had been maltreated in a house used for their assemblies, and the tribunal desired authority for its destruction and the erection of a memorial chapel, the Suprema replied cautiously with a number of questions as to value, location, and expense, as there were no funds for the purpose, and it ordered the auto de fe to be held, reserving decision as to the house. The subsequent proceedings against the convicts, who revoked their confessions, show that the house was still standing four or five years later. There was no such hesitation in the stimulated excitement following the discovery of Protestantism in high places in 1559, when, in the Valladolid Auto de Fe of May 21, the Cayasa family were nearly exterminated, the house of the mother, Leonor de Vibero, where the little group used to assemble, was raised, and a pillar was erected on the spot with an inscription that can still be read, quote, During the pontificate of Paul IV and the reign of Philip II, the holy office of the Inquisition condemned this building of Pedro de Cayasa and Leonor de Vibero, his wife, to be torn down and leveled with the ground, since here the Lutherans assembled to hold meetings against our holy Catholic faith and the Church of Rome, May 21, 1559. Similarly, in the great Auto of Seville, September 24, 1559, the houses of Larice de Alarego and Isabel de Baena, which had served as Protestant conventicles, were destroyed. A thrifty disposition to restrain inconsiderate zeal for obliterating the receptacles of heresy was manifested by the Suprema in 1565 when it forbade the raising of a house unless it belonged to the delinquents and thus would not have to be paid for. This restriction, however, was not observed on an occasion which was perhaps the latest as well as the most conspicuous example of the practice. In the great Madrid auto of July 4, 1632, which was honored by the presence of Philip IV, among those who were burnt were Miguel Rodriguez and his wife Isabel Núñez Álvarez, in whose house not only were held Jewish meetings, but an image of Christ had been scourged, and when it shed blood and thrice spoke to them, they consumed it with fire. Of course it was doomed, and on the day after the execution, the Inquisition ordered it to be appraised, in order that the owner might be compensated. He was the licentiate Barquero, a highly respected jurist, who protested against its destruction until he received good security for its value. No time was lost. On the 6th, the inquisitor Cristóbal de Ibarra, accompanied by the Admiral of Castile, the Duke of Medina de la Torres, and other gentlemen, 
many familiars and a crowd of workmen, and preceded by a guard of halberdiers with banner and drums, marched to the spot where a secretary read a proclamation of the Toledo Tribunal to the effect that it ordered the demolition of the house where a holy Christ had been scourged and maltreated. Then the drums beat and the workmen assailed the structure so zealously that by nine o'clock that night there was not a vestige of it left, the populace eagerly aiding them in tearing the stones from the walls and carrying off the timbers. The site was not left, as the canons direct, to be a receptacle of filth. Money was raised, and a Capuchin convent was erected, known as La Paciencia, in remembrance of the patience with which Christ had borne the indignities heaped upon him. Spiritual Penances It might be presupposed that, in dealing with spiritual offenses, and professing that its main object was the salvation of souls, the Inquisition would incline rather to spiritual exercises than to pecuniary and corporal punishments, that it would seek to instruct and elevate the spirit rather than to afflict the body. Religious persecution, however, has always preferred the harshness of coercion, and has held that the surest way to bring conviction to the soul was to torment the flesh. We need therefore not be surprised to see how insignificant a place spiritual penances held in the sentences of the Holy Office, and it would scarce be worth while to consider them, except to note how little was the importance attributed to them by the tribunals. Except in trifling cases, which merited no real punishment, such spiritual penances as we occasionally meet with are conjoined with material penalties. A man sentenced to imprisonment may perhaps be required to fast on Fridays for six months or a year, and to recite on those days a prescribed number of Ave Marias and Pater Nosters or other prayers. Pilgrimages to shrines as distant as St. Thomas of Canterbury or St. James of Copostela, so frequently prescribed in the medieval Inquisition, were unknown. It is true that the formula of sentence on the reconciled, condemning them to prison, requires them on Saturdays to make a pilgrimage to some designated shrine in the vicinity, where on their knees they must repeat with devotion five potters, Ave Marias, Credos, and Salve Reginas, but this was not often used in practice. Clerical offenders, sentenced to reclusion in convents, frequently had spiritual exercises included among numerous other inflictions. While this moderation was the rule, occasionally, of course, the unlimited discretion of the tribunals made exceptions, as in a singularly ill-judged penance imposed at Toledo in 1653, on Jerónima Mendes, a child ten years of age, convicted of Judaism, who was sentenced to a month's instruction in the faith and the daily recitation of the rosary for a year. Seeing that the rosary consists of seventeen paternosters, sixteen gloria patris, a hundred and fifty-three Ave Marias, and the Apostles' Creed, one can estimate the burden imposed on a child of such tender years, and how little it would conduce to training the youthful penitent in a love for the faith. Such an infliction, however, was exceptional, and it frequently happens, in the reports of the tribunals, after detailing the material portions of a sentence, that there is a mere general allusion to some spiritual penances, which suggests how slender was the consideration bestowed on them. There is one type of better promise, not infrequent in the later period, 
such as a sentence pronounced at Toledo in 1777 on Antonio Rubio and Diego Gonzalez, condemned for heretical acts and blasphemy, the former to five years' labor in the arsenal of Cartagena, and the latter to three years in the Presidio of Cuta, both of whom were required, before leaving prison, to perform fifteen days of spiritual exercises under a director who would instruct them. The hearing of Mass as a penitent, which was a very frequent infliction, cannot be classed as a spiritual penance. It was a simple humiliation, and was so intended, especially when performed publicly in church. Unusual Penalties a few instances will indicate how the tribunals sometimes used their wide discretion in adapting to any given case what was deemed an appropriate penalty. It is true that when Valencia, in 1539, made Fray Torres, a priest, appear in a public auto de fe with a bridle in his mouth and a pannier of straw on his back, the Suprema rebuked it and forbade such eccentricities for the future. So when, in 1568, Inquisitor Morales reported that, during his visit to San Sebastián, he had condemned certain offenders to have sermons preached at their expense, the Suprema mildly remarked that this was a novelty. In an auto de fe at Urena in 1579, there was a negress named Catalina, the slave of a man of Zafra. It was doubtless through consideration of his interests that she was spared the corporal chastisement visited on her accomplices, but there was a distinct invasion of his rights in a prohibition to him to sell her without license from the inquisitors. In 1607 at Valencia, a single witness accused Maria Tubari, a Morisca midwife, of using Moorish ceremonies in baptizing infants, and of circumcising the males. The proof, against her denial, was not thought sufficient to justify torture, and she was required only to abjure de levi, but she was deprived for life of practicing her profession. There was wisdom, if a trifle arbitrary, in a sentence at Toledo in 1685 on Lucas Morales for blasphemy, for it included, among other penalties, a prohibition to gamble, a sensible provision against relapse, for gaming was recognized as the most prolific source of blasphemy. There was the same latitude in vindictive as in deterrent punishments. At Valladolid, from 1635 to 1637, there were several Judaizers convicted of maltreating an image of Christ. The consultors voted for relaxation, but the Suprema approved the decision of the inquisitors that they should have the right arm nailed to a stake in the form of a cross, while their sentences were being read in an auto de fe. Less symbolical and still more original was a spectacle devised for the Mexican auto of December 7, 1664, where one of the penitents was stripped to the waist, while two Indians smeared him with honey and covered him with feathers, in which guise he was made to stand in the sun for four hours on the staging. Even recruiting for the army was not beneath the dignity of the tribunal, as when, in 1650, Toledo condemned Andres de Herrera Calderón for blasphemy to serve for four years in the campaigns against Portugal and Catalonia, where, doubtless, he enriched his vocabulary of expletives. 
there evidently was no defined limit to the power of suiting the penalty to the inquisitorial conception of the offence, and the tribunals made ample use of their prerogative. End of section 17